Welcome to a parenting space actually designed for you, where you can get answers about navigating a life that includes autism. I'm Dr. Tay, and today I'm answering your questions. Anytime you submit questions on my social media, they could end up on this podcast. Let's dive into today's question. Hello, y'all. We are back for another Q&A episode, and this one is inspired by conversations I often have with parents that they say to me, okay, my child was diagnosed, but now what? And I want to talk you through what you do if your child just received an autism diagnosis. So first and foremost, you should have received a written report from your child's provider. And in this report, sometimes they are insanely long. There's really only a few pieces of key information that you need. So I want to talk through that. I also want to talk about intervention and also how you can begin to educate yourself. This is a kind of modified and briefer version of what I would do with families during diagnostic feedback. So my diagnostic feedback sessions really look like making sure we can piece all of this together. I I don't deliver the report until a conversation is had. I want you as a parent to understand why your child was diagnosed with autism, what symptoms and traits are contributing to that, because that also informs how you then can help to support your child even further. Then we're going to talk about recommendations. And I like to prioritize those in terms of importance, because sometimes what you're going to get is a bunch of recommendations and you're going to feel stuck, like you have to do everything. And I want you to know you don't have to do everything. You can take things in bite-sized pieces. And that's true. Even if you aren't working with me, I want you to take that from this episode, that small changes can make a big impact. And then often it's an opportunity to ask questions and be able to process the information. And a point that I realized I didn't say at the top of the episode, and I want to say right here, right now, is part of my diagnostic feedbacks always, always include talking about the emotions that come with the autism diagnosis. So I have different ways in which I share the information that a child meets diagnostic criteria. Sometimes I'll be honest, I'm I'm pretty direct in it. And then it's like, okay, let's talk about why. Other times it's about collaborating together of like, hey, you reported this. I observed this. Are we in agreement on these symptoms? Well, these symptoms come together to add up to this picture of autism. And it ultimately depends on my dynamic with the family and all of that. But I always, always stop and pause. And after I say your child meets diagnostic criteria for autism, I pause and I say, what was that like to hear? And a lot of times parents are expecting this. And just because you are expecting the diagnosis doesn't always make it easier when you hear a professional confirming the diagnosis. And so I give parents space to be able to process this. Now, if you didn't have that experience, I'm going to encourage you first and foremost, before you do anything else, is taking time to actually check in with yourself. How do you feel? And I want you to know that it's really normal for all these various emotions to come up. For some of you, you might feel shocked that your child met diagnostic criteria. You might not have been expecting it. For others of you, you knew in your gut that it was going to be autism. There was no doubt in your mind. And so it could have felt like validation receiving the diagnosis. For some of you too, then there's that middle ground of, 
you were pretty sure, but there's this hopeful part of you being like, maybe they don't. And so it can be really hard to hear, okay, my suspicions were right. And these emotions I just named aren't mutually exclusive to that situation. You can have all of those emotions come up regardless of where you're at cognitively with the diagnosis. And so I talk a lot about with parents, know that likely a lot of these different emotions are going to pop up. It could look like, it could look like sadness, you know, where, or even grief, where you're grieving the expectations you had for your child and you're not grieving your child. You're grieving the shift in what you thought their life would look like. And here's the thing is that once you get to the place of acceptance, you start to realize that their life can be absolutely beautiful. Most times when you first meet your child, you're not picturing a life that includes autism unless, you know, you have a strong family history of autism. And so knowing sadness and grief can come up, knowing denial, that is a, that's an emotion, right? It's your mind protecting you from going to worst case scenarios and worrying about everything. It also, it can feel really scary to admit this. So don't be surprised if denial comes up for you or for your partner or another family member, it might look like anger, like why, why my child? Why, why my family? It also can look like guilt and shame. Like what did I do wrong? Or maybe I wasn't attentive enough or, oh my gosh, I should have listened to my gut sooner. Why didn't I pursue this diagnosis when I first had concerns? All these different complex emotions can come up. And so that's the first thing that I want you to do in response to your child getting an autism diagnosis is giving yourself space to process everything that comes up. And don't shame yourself for experiencing these. You can, and I say this directly to parents, you can have your own emotions over the diagnosis and still love your child unconditionally and still be supportive of your child. And just knowing that it doesn't need to be this black or white thing, both can coexist. You can love your child wholeheartedly, unconditionally, without a doubt, and you can still feel angry that they they receive this autism diagnosis. You can still feel sadness. You can still be questioning things. You can still feel a lot of guilt. All of these things are true. And I want you to remember that the kid that walked into that appointment is the same kid that walked out of that appointment. Your child didn't change as a result of having this evaluation done. You simply are gaining greater understanding of how your child's brain works. And that is important to keep in mind. Your child hasn't changed just how you understand your child has. And there are so many gifts and blessings that come with that because then now you can begin to understand how their brain works, who they truly are and what their strengths are and what their support areas are as well. So all of that is a super important context. And for many of you, when you were told that your child has autism or is autistic, you weren't told about the emotional journey that comes with it. And I just, I want you to know that it is really normal. It's expected and there's nothing wrong or flawed with you for feeling this way. Now, the next step that I want you to take is if you did get a report, I want you to dive into that report. But often I hear from parents like, 
Taylor, like I couldn't get through the report. It either made me too sad because all they did was talk about everything that was wrong with my child, or it was too long, or I didn't understand it. So if you're in that camp, please know that is okay. Really, ultimately, there's a few key areas of the report that we look at. So I love going to the diagnostic summary section and, or it might be conclusions, something like that, diagnosis, and reading a description of why that autism diagnosis was made. You can also look for in the report, it's going to have a diagnostic code from the DSM. 299.00 is the DSM code, or you might also see F84.0, which is the ICD-10 code. So ICD is the medical classification system across the whole world. The DSM is specific to the U.S. So those are the diagnostic codes, but look how they describe your child's presentation so you can understand that as well. Then the most important part of the report in terms of your next steps is actually looking at the recommendations. So there should be like numbered or bullet pointed like a list of different things that you can do. I want to quickly walk you through what these might be. Keep in mind that they can be tailored to what your child needs. So your child might not have all of these, or there might be things that are prioritized, that type of thing. But this is going to give you the roadmap of what you need to pursue first. And I want to remind you, you do not need to do everything on that list, particularly if you, if it's really, really long, some providers do that where they tell you everything you need to know. At this point, I ought not to do that because I, I got so much feedback from parents that that was overwhelming. So I try to keep my reports as simple as possible and telling parents what they need to do right now. But many reports aren't like that. And so it might feel like, oh my gosh, I have to do all of it. But I want you to think about before you even dive into it is, Where do you think your child needs the most support? And then going and looking for the things that are going to tackle those. So often we're going to start with intervention. So there's different types of intervention modalities. There's speech language therapy. There is occupational therapy. There's physical therapy. There is ABA, applied behavior analysis. There are different models and all of that in terms of early intervention, like naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions. I talked about that in an episode recently, which could also look like floor time, DIR floor time is a really popular one right now. So many different intervention strategies. And so what I will tell you is most autistic kids need speech and OT. Speech, whether even if they're verbal and they're speaking and their expressive language isn't behind, we often can support the pragmatic aspect, the conversational, the reciprocity. Additionally, you might have a kid who's a gestalt language processor, meaning that the way that they learn language is by hearing it in their environment. And so we want more of an NLA approach, naturalistic language acquisition. And so this is going to really help to support your kiddo in learning language naturally from their environment. Your child might also need an AAC device in order to really support their 
the spoken language process or having a modality that can communicate for them. And keeping in mind an AAC device, it's easy to think AAC stands for augmentative and alternative communication. If I have a device that's speaking for my child, my child will never speak. And research actually supports that that is not the case. Instead, it helps to really promote your child's spoken language abilities. It also can help to reduce frustration and help you understand them more if they have another modality to be able to communicate. So speech language therapy is really, really common in autistic kiddos. Occupational therapy is another realm, whether that's working on something like fine motor skills, but more often I would say things like sensory regulation, keeping in mind, not all OTs are trained in sensory regulation. And so don't be afraid to interview providers. So How do you find providers? Call your insurance, ask your pediatrician. You can also ask the provider who provides the diagnosis for referrals as well, especially if they're local to you. But yeah, OT with sensory regulation, they can also work on things like behavior or like what we call adaptive skills, which is the ability to do everyday activities and reducing the amount of support. This could look like things like washing their hands, brushing their teeth. Later on as they age, it could be like independent dress. It could be navigating and learning how to read a map, things like that. But keeping in mind that not all OTs are trained in these modalities, and these are often what autistic kiddos need. On the same vein, not all SLPs, speech language pathologists, are trained on things like assault language processing and AAC devices. So don't be afraid to interview your therapist. PT is another one. Physical therapy often works on gross motor skills, but we do see reduced muscle tone, reduced core strength, all of that in autistic kiddos and some then that have gross motor delays. So that's more the developmental realm. Sometimes you'll get things like play-based therapy or developmental therapy or special instruction, especially through the school district. And keep in mind in the United States, most states do a birth to three program, which allows you to receive early intervention services for your, your kiddo through the state. You do not need that autism diagnosis in order to be able to access those. And then most often at age three, kids transfer to the school system, but they're still going to provide those early intervention services. Then we have things like ABA, early intervention, DIR floor time, and DBIs, all of that that are going to be more autism specific. I do have episodes on, there's an episode on physical therapy. I have one on occupational therapy. I don't have one on speech therapy yet, but I'm working on it. I have one on ABA and the controversy of ABA so that you can make an informed decision for your family. And then one on more of these like naturalistic early intervention models. And then for older kids, it might look like mental health treatment for things like anxiety, depression, ADHD, all of that. So those co-occurring disorders. So there is an episode on ADHD and another one on executive functioning deficits. And then coming up, I have one on selective mutism. And we talk about some anxiety things in there as well. So lots of different modalities in that realm. Now, the next kind of piece of this is school, thinking about your child's educational needs. There there was a whole school is in session series where we dove into special education and IEPs and all of that. And so knowing that through the public education setting, your child may qualify for an IEP. I say may 
Because yes, autism is a diagnostic classification to receive an IEP, which stands for Individualized Education Program, but a clinical diagnosis does not automatically qualify a kid for an educational diagnosis. They have to identify educational needs. But with Ashley Barlow, we talked all about how you can really advocate for your child to get that IEP as well. And then I already mentioned you can get like intervention services, speech, OT, all of that through the school district as well, in addition to that specially designed instruction. So that's often a section of the report. In the report, some providers also will talk about all the different accommodations and interventions that can be made in the school system. And then the last area that usually comes up is in terms of medical needs, whether that is being referred to neurology potentially because maybe there's concerns about neural development or epilepsy or seizures. That's one area. You might be referred to a geneticist for genetic testing, keeping in mind that the genetic testing can help us understand if there is a genetic cause of autism. And we know autism is related to genetics, but we don't have all the genes identified. So often it can be helpful to get genetic testing done, but I wouldn't say it's like your top priority unless your provider is telling you it, it is because of another reason it likely isn't going to inform your intervention strategies. You also might be looking at things like medication, particularly if there are co-occurring disorders like ADHD or anxiety, and the provider is feeling like medication could be a good supportive route. Keeping in mind someone like myself, a child psychologist, we can't prescribe medication. And so it's going to be going to a psychiatrist or your pediatrician or a developmental pediatrician to talk about medication. So those are often the breakdowns. Now, I can't specifically prioritize for your family what is most important because it's highly tailored to each kid. But what I will tell you is adding on some type of intervention approach is going to likely be important. And then additionally, I would say pursuing an IEP is also going to be important if your child is three and older and getting this school system so it's supporting your child. The other thing that likely your report will talk about, and I also recommend, is informing your child's care team about this diagnosis. So it can sometimes be like, well, why do I need to? Maybe you already have a speech therapist, an occupational therapist, even the pediatrician. You might be going, I don't see the point in that. A lot of times it can really help those providers to shift their perspective. It also can let, help them to help you advocate and know what, what to pursue and what to look after. They might be able to share different grants your child's eligible for. Another thing that I didn't touch on is in many states in the U.S., your child can qualify for Medicaid. A lot of the states have like a Medicaid waiver, for example, that allows your child to qualify based on their diagnosis. I know in the state of Pennsylvania, they even waive the, the income requirement based on the diagnosis alone. But communicating with your child's care team is going to help them to better understand your child. And that, that also goes for school. Now, you're right as a parent, you absolutely can choose who, when, where, how you share this information with them. I recommend to the families I work with, it's a conversation as long as it feels aligned with them 
sharing the diagnostic report with those providers and the care team so that they can understand why, why autism was diagnosed can be really, really helpful. The last piece before I wrap up this episode is educating yourself on neurodiversity. I think this is one of the most important pieces, and it's very likely that your provider didn't talk about this aspect. I actually had a conversation with a parent today in a diagnostic feedback of how TikTok and Instagram have helped her to learn so much and more than her child's care team is able to communicate with her. And some of that is in the medical community, we rely on research a lot and the research has not caught up with neurodiversity. Research is slow moving. Something like social media is really fast moving. It disseminates information at a really rapid pace that research isn't able to keep up with. And in turn, some of your child's providers might not be keeping up with either. So keeping in mind, most programs to date, I would say, are not educating their providers on neurodiversity. And so it's it's providers taking it on themselves. Yes, we can get continuing education credits, but even in terms of that, there's not a lot of access and a lot of good ways for us as providers to learn. One of the best ways I've learned is going on social media and listening to autistic adults and also learning from other professionals who are really dedicated to learning about neurodiversity. So yes, this is a burden you shouldn't have to take on. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to benefit your family exponentially. The time that you spend learning about neurodiversity and understanding that autism doesn't make your child flawed and that a lot of the stigma that comes with autism is the way in which we view it. I'm going to tell you, like, it is going to make such a difference in your child's life because when you learn to accept their diagnosis and learn to embrace who they are, you're going to be able to model that for them and help them to learn who they are as well. And that's going to be a really important part of their journey. So I will put a few resources in the show notes specific about neurodiversity that I include in my diagnostic reports, but I also encourage you go on social media, go on TikTok, go on Instagram, search neurodiversity, start educating yourself. And with this is super, super important. Like hear me loud and clear is yes, you can get information from professionals. And you need to also be listening to autistic individuals themselves. They have the lived experience and that's something I'll never be able to communicate to you. But what I can communicate to you is making sure you realize what an incredible resource that autistic self-advocates are for you and for your child. All right, y'all. I hope that gives you some insight that yes. It can be overwhelming. It can be a lot of information, but breaking it down into these steps, creating space for your own emotions, reading the parts of the report that really matter, understanding why autism was diagnosed in that short summary, and then also the recommendations, but realizing you don't need to do every recommendation. They are called recommendations for a reason. They're not called requirements. They're called recommendations and follow your gut and follow your intuition on what you think is best for your child. But I would say, think about adding one therapy service on that really tackles an area you think your child needs support in. And then additionally, how can you start to let your child's care team know about this 
in particular, the school system. So the school system then can support your child. Or if your child's under three, the early intervention system, which goes hand in hand with the first point. And then educating yourself about neurodiversity and listening to the autistic community. Honestly, that one should have been number one, but I wanted to lay the framework for you of like, what action you take. But if I prioritize what I just shared with you right now, huh? I'm like thinking about this out loud. I want to say neurodiversity, but I also think you processing your emotions is equally important. Honestly, those two pieces that if you can work through your own emotions and work through the energy, emotions are energy, the work through your energy that is being built up, that's going to be so important for your child because otherwise they're having to manage your energy because you aren't managing it. They feel, they sense. I often think autistic kiddos like have superpowers in this way. They really know what is going on. So manage your energy, manage your emotions, give yourself that time, that processing, and then educate yourself on neurodiversity and start viewing autism from that lens. Honestly, I think those are going to have the most impact more than finding the perfect speech therapist or more than feeling like you need to do 40 hours of therapy a week. You don't, by the way, but sometimes that's the recommendation more than even like feeling like you need to get it perfect and nail the IEP, right? Taking care of yourself and understanding that all brains think differently is going to be the most important things. All right, y'all, if you have questions, I always love answering them. This one has been on the docket for a while, but it was time to finally dive into this, but let me know what questions you have, because I absolutely love being able to provide episodes and create episodes that speak directly to the things that you are wondering about. All right, y'all, that's a wrap. This episode was meant to be short and sweet. Full-length episodes air every Wednesday with many episodes like this sprinkled in between. So subscribe now so you don't miss the next one. And if you want to inspire a future episode, because that's how we roll over here, ask me a question on any of my social media pages for a chance to have your question featured. Bye y'all, and I'll see you soon.